This is Seek Bytes, the software engineering podcast by Seek.com. Join our experts as they share their thoughts and tips on mastering the craft of code. From career advice to technical deep dives, Seek Bytes is the podcast for software engineers by software engineers. Welcome back to Seek Bytes, a podcast by engineers for engineers. My name is Bridget. With me today is Seamus. Hello. Elliot. Hey. And our very special guest, Lester. Hello. Uh, Lester, you are the head of selection, which is part of our higher engineering organization here at Seek. Correct. How's that? What do you do? What is the head of selection? I ask myself that every day um, in terms of what I do. Um, it kind of do everything uh, from, from you know operating, operating teams, managing teams, um, understanding engineers is a, bi- a bi- big part of my job. And um, I guess, in a way, uh, at this um, being ahead of allows me to um, think about strategies. Uh, so there's a li- little bit of a longer view um, than, than you would normally have as a head of. I suppose the one good question is, what is an engineer versus, say, a developer or a programmer? I've, I've sort of had this question to myself over the years. I started as an engineer uh, myself, um, but I would call myself a, a software developer first and not an engineer. Uh, the, the succinct difference to me is that a, a software developer or a programmer uh, is someone that specifically looks at code, whereas an engineer, you kind of do all the things that you can to produce an outcome. Um, uh, if, you, if you think about it, like you're, you're not just doing software, you're actually managing how software interacts with people. Um, and, and how do you get the outcomes that you know your team wants to achieve um, out of that? So uh, in a way, as an engineer, you do a, a little bit less programming. There's still main core part of your job, but there's an additional part in which you need to join all the dots together. And, and, and we're not solving technical problems. We're solving human problems um, as engineers. How have you found that that's scaled up to kind of the broader view of where you are as head of selection today? I'm able to sort of see a lot more context as head of. So being able to sort of provide that linkage between what an engineer does and how that relates to the outcomes of the business in general. Um, That's a big part of my job in terms of trying to understand what that is myself. And then synthesizing that and then sort of trying to explain it to engineers is like, this is what you have to do in order to get the outcomes. And the reason for, there, there are very odd decisions that get made in, uh, in software engineering in, in companies. And, and a lot of that is due to the lack of context. So I find, uh, you know, a chief part of my role is really to kind of convey that context to engineers um, in terms of what they're doing that's valuable. And sometimes, you know, I guess as an engineer, you sometimes get too mired into the details to actually understand the context. Um, and to have someone to be able to kind of bring that context to, I, I feel is quite invaluable. How many people are you residing over there? Because it's a lot of people, right? How have you found kind of spreading that context when it's really hard to go to everyone at their desks or on Slack and be like, hey, by the way, this is what you're doing. Um, just FYI. like. I try and I fail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, the, the word here I like to use is scaling. Um, so so it, it kind of depends on how you want to scale yourself. There's obvious levels of maturity as you you know um, go into a different uh, role, like for example, head of engineering. So I, I preside to answer your question uh, over 56 individuals um, across three teams. 
Um, and that's just within my remit. Uh, I still have partners in product that I need to sort of work with as well. Um, so that takes it to about 77. But the, the, the word here, I guess, scaling, is that, um, that as, as I grow older or, or I mature, um, I tend like a fine wine or cheese. Oh, a cheese. Mostly like a cheese. Cheese, cheese. <laughs> stinky, um, stinky cheese. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, you, you learn to let go and you, you find a lot of empowerment in doing that. It's, it's very weird. It's a very weird um, thing where, where you actually get a lot more done. One of the things that I found um, by being able to scale myself is, is learning to delegate and then seeing how my delegation actually comes to fruition because the people that I delegate to would have done it a lot better than what I've, what I've done. So I've seen a lot of that. Delegation's and a real struggle, isn't it? To just to be hands-off and, and let somebody else do it? It's yeah, correct. Yeah. So, you know, you, I go by heuristics. So if, if, if you feel like things are to be done correctly, I'll have to do it myself, then you're not really learning how to delegate. So if you... So, so that's a marker for me. So if I say that, that means that I need to sort of index or invest myself into learning how to delegate. And, and how did you end up as uh, head of engineering for selection? Well, after being an engineer, I started off into management as an engineering manager. So I was actually an engineering manager for one of the teams in selection. And that team I used to be an engineer in. So, you know, like I had, I had that transition between being, a, being an engineer or a tech lead and, and, and transitioning myself into an engineering manager, um, which meant that I kind of knew the space pretty well. So one of the things that, um, again, I use the word scaling. Uh, one of the things that, that, that helped me with sort of getting into the head of uh, position was the fact that I could effectively not do a lot of work with the team and the team will sort of go on by itself and sort of perform um, and mature and sort of um, progress. Uh, and that gave me a lot of time to do what I call up and out. So, you know, like as, as an engineering manager, you're, or as a manager um, and leader, you're supposed to be, there, there are kind of two teams for you. There's, there's your immediate team that you look after, um, which you manage. And then there's also the, the, the team that is like your peers um, in terms of other engineering managers, other leaders. Um, and doing work in that area sort of um, extends your reach beyond your own team. And that then starts to build a little bit of a brand in terms of what you could do in the up and out. Um, so, but you can only do that once you've got your house in order. So you can never do that. If you did that when your team's not performing, you're basically just it's a, it's effectively a dereliction of duty. Um, in my, my view, strong words, but that's what, what it is. So you have to get your house in order, learn how to scale that, and then, um, and then you, s you find that you spend, like, I, uh, at the end of, um, towards going into head of engineering, I was spending about 10 to 15% of my time with the team in a week. And, and that meant that I could scale myself in the up and out and sort of look, look at bigger problems rather than just my own team's problems. It also helps me in, in managing the team as well because wh when I get more context, that means the team uh, will benefit from that in that they get better information and, and they make better choices. And from the outside, it, it looks like they're progressing, which they are. And, and, and that is a, um, a little bit of a cycle that self-perpetuates itself, which is a good thing. 
Yeah, it seems like once you have some of those connections as well to start getting the more context, right, you're able to answer a lot more specific questions and problems that your team has, both in terms of the context for the work, but like people questions as well, right? Like oftentimes a lot of people have questions about like what's going on and everything. And it feels like building those connections is a really fast way to get those questions answered. Yes, it helps. Because like I said, again, we're, 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 we're solving people problems, not technical problems. The technical, the, the technical prowess that we bring to the job is really to solve people problems. And, and I, I think that as engineers, if, if engineers sort of understand that from, from a first principles kind of thing, then their work would be much easier. Yeah, I mean, this, this seems really obvious to me when we look at our code reviews and some of the biggest comments that the, I would say the better engineers that I've worked with are about how, how to make something more readable rather than performant. And it's often that we'll make these small choices that make it more friendly for people. And even if it means a, like a very, very minor performance reduction. Yeah. Now that I've been doing line managing since the start of the year, I think everything you've said is really ringing true for me as well. Yeah, I feel like I'm starting to see my team become more confident and capable without as much oversight from myself or my peers and being able to have more freedom to go deeper on the broadness, if that's a sensible thing to say, like being able to get a deeper understanding of the broader picture. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say makes a good engineer? What makes a good engineer, I guess, would be the same as what makes a good manager and what makes a good, um, what, what would kind of help with your careers in, in all senses of the word would be self-awareness. Um, so, so, you know, again, getting mind into details, what that means from a self-awareness point of view is that you are able to sort of helicopter out and sort of look at what you're doing. Not easy, but, you know, if you hone that skill, it's like a muscle. Uh, you get better at it over time. Um, effectively, that's what I do. Um, from, from on a day-to-day basis, being able to kind of dive down into the details and then pull back up and see what, what the outcome looks like. Obviously, if I'm spending, you know, the core part of my day being in the details, being being a software engineer, that's a lot harder, but, you know, like it's, it's a lot easier for me because I don't need to go deep dive into it. What I generally do, just like what Seamus is saying, like, you know, like you look at the surrounding things around the engineers and how they can do their job better. So I do a lot of meta programming. So, you know, looking at GitHub repos, looking at um, costs, um, understanding how many uh, dependency updates and renovate that we have to do uh, across across a particular system and is that efficient. So you still do, like, you know, as a manager, I still do a lot of code. Well, not really, but there's no critical path code that I I do, but it's mostly just try and find out information um, around the site, if you know what I mean. You still get to see the code and touch it, kind of feel yes, feel the health of the system, I guess. And and you know, like like what Seamus was saying, you you can see the conversations that go on in PRs, and you can you can deduce from them in terms of the majority, uh, somewhat the majority of the engineers when they when when they talk about certain things and when they place importance on certain things, um, and then you can see the maturity from that. So. It's a win-win for me because I get to see the the you know the, the core part of what the engineers are doing. Um, uh, the, the advantage of being an engineer before that would be the fact that I understand what that means when when people say certain things around linting, for example. Um, you know, you can see the maturity in that in that conversation, um, and and that helps everywhere. You mentioned you 
got to get your house in order and you've got to have a, a high-performing team before you start worrying about scale. So what, what are the traits of a high-performing team? I don't know whether they're traits or not, but I like to work on the assumption. I, I read a book called The Score Takes Care of Itself, um, and, and it's, 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 um, it's effectively t- trying to tell you don't look at, you know, like when, when you think about uh, engineering teams and high-performing, you normally think about them delivering outcomes for the business. And, and what, people, what some people tend to do, tend to look at is like the velocity. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a good manager, I think that you shouldn't be looking at the velocity. It, that's a side effect of what, what you put in place. So th- these are things like engineering practices, are they, are they, are they well-rounded? So, so in a world where you're sort of managing a team, you're, you, you're kind of looking at how you build and how you run. So how you build is how you operate. So, you know, like in, in those senses, you'd be thinking about things like uh, how big are your systems? Do they need to be that, this big to, to be able to serve your customers? And how do you make that efficient? Um, so how you operate it and how you run is how you um, discover new value for customers and how you build for the future. So, so looking at component parts of those, um, those ideals in terms of build and run, you get to, you get to have a um, better understanding of what you need to improve. So whether it's cost, it's context-based, it's context right? You can't, there's not a, there's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Um, and it depends on the maturity of the team as well. I don't know whether I've sort of run around and answered your question, but it's really around just the little, little things that we, we, we value as engineers. So things like, are your builds, are your, are your build pipelines healthy? Uh, do you have good co- test confidence and that you don't have to worry about anything? Where, um, un, you know, if the test breaks, you know something's wrong. So those are the little, little things that you need to, um, uh, that I look at in order to see that they're high performing. The velocity comes out as a, as a side effect. So you never focus on, on the score, you focus on the details that build the score. How have you kind of um, built up that sense for what is healthy and how confident a team should be in their testing and things like that? Have you identified any ways to kind of figure out what areas need improvement, basically? You know, there are qualitative things that you need to look at. There, there are many quantitative things that you can look at. Quantitative things are things like, you know, you get, you get a list of the builds that your systems are going through and see what their change failure rate looks like. And that comes from the Accelerate book. Um, and, and, you know, like if you, if you see like 20% of the time your builds break, that's probably something that you need to invest in to sort of fix up a little bit. I don't know what the right number is, but we, we at Seek have this thing where it's like change failure rate can't be more than 5% um, in, in terms of like a, like a system, for example. Um, and then you get you, you come across flaky test, tests, um, and then you know like half the time it, it fails, and when it fails, it's not a real fail. So you you gotta work on those things and make sure that they are deterministic. So these are quantitative things that you can kind of look at and from a statistics p- perspective. There are also qualitative heuristics as well. Like for example, um, if you know like our work is relatively straightforward. The reason why I wanted to become an engineer is because things are deterministic, right? Like you. you it, there is a bug, you will find it. And, and once you, obviously, if you haven't found it yet, it feels like magic and why is this bro- bro- breaking? But you can get to it at the end and you know exactly what's causing those things. That's why I like engineering. 
Unless, of course, it's the, it's the other meme where it's like, my code works, and I have no idea why. Oh, that's that's all the time. But, you know, <laughs> but when you have to dive deep into um, stuff that you want to know exactly what's going on, you can. It's not one of those ones where it's like, oh, it's a... Oh, it's a personality clash or anything like that. Uh, computers don't have personality clashes. Will, code, code will tell you what you're doing wrong, basically. It's just a feedback mechanism for yourself. In, in saying that things are deterministic in engineering, so things like planning. So um, when you know that there's a piece of work that you need to do to produce a, a specific outcome, um, w what a good team will do, will do a, quite a bit of, not quite a bit of analysis, will do the right amount of analysis up front so that things are clear to stakeholders in terms of what needs to be done. Um, uh, I'll give an example of um, data migration. So, you know, like uh, it's a very common theme where you need to migrate data from one system to the other. And, um, and, and a team that's kind of performing well will probably do a little bit of upfront analysis in terms of how many transactions per second they need to get to, to, to achieve data migration at a certain date. A, a, a team that's not doing so well will probably fly by the seat of their pants and probably kind of like do like they, they probably don't have enough time to do analysis and they'll you know it, it'll be like everything's haphazard um, and 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 they'll they'll find out their velocity when they get into it you know when when, when you have um, so those are the heuristics those are the qualitative things that you look at from a high performing team hope that helps it does. <laughs> So what what patterns do you think are kind of overhyped? Because you've been around for a little while. How many how many years have you been at Seek actually, Lester? Oh, actually, I I answered that question this morning at coffee. Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Yes. Wow, that is um, a long time. It is a long time, um, especially when all my previous um, jobs were actually less than two years. Um, so Seek has spoiled me, uh, made me very comfortable, so I stayed on. Um, but uh, that said, uh, I did I. I move around a lot at Seek, so I've been in the hire space, which is a, a domain, and then I started in the candidate domain, uh, went into a little bit into security, into platforms with Bridget, um, and um, yeah, so I've been around the place a little bit and and held slightly different. All in engineering, though, you know, as an engineer, sort of growing up, um, that sort of thing, I found um, my calling in management in that I, I, I can see myself scaling a lot better with a team than myself, um, and that's why I chose management. I guess the question would be, what are patterns, what patterns are overhyped by people? Because patterns themselves, to me, aren't overhyped. It's really a, a solution to a problem. Uh, where it gets overhyped is where people assume that the pattern will solve a problem which they haven't defined yet. Um, and that that's like example uh, would be design patterns right 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 into there you know like we do uh, command patterns strategy patterns I don't know whether you folks know about this this is a very I'm actually running a book club for seekers on, on software design patterns trying to map o old OO patterns into functional it's been an interesting experience yeah the uh, the short the TLDR is very few OO patterns actually like map over to Functional, functional stuff, yeah. but some like command pattern strategies, factories, these things are still pretty much the same. Very generic type things, right? Yeah. So they um, solve really common problems. It doesn't matter what like type of code you're writing; those problems are still going to exist for the most part. Yeah, I'm a little bit maverick in 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 that sense. In that, like, um, well, not maverick, but 
again, this self-awareness piece comes in. You, you sort of need to understand what those patterns were actually created for, the context in which it was built on, and what problems that it was trying to solve. Uh, what I found over time is that people tend to um, over-index on things, like microservices, for example, uh, and that gave it a, a little bit of a bad rap around Seek very, very quickly when everyone um, did everything in the name of microservices. Um, not really understanding what it actually meant and what 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 problems that it was trying to solve, um, and basically th that's how you overhype something mm. um, is by basically just doing it without thinking. Um, you really have to go in eyes wide open to to see what problems you're trying to solve, and actually not get sucked into things like sunk cost fallacies or, or we're we're so far down this pattern we just might as well just use it. Um, because everything that you do has a cost to it. It's interesting that you mentioned microservices because we talked about it just a couple of weeks ago. We had um, microservices monoliths was one of the topics, and we talked about how Google has a was it over a billion line repo? They've got a they've got a repo with over a billion lines of code in it, and uh, there's a a lot of I can't remember any of the ones we talked about. There's a lot of large web tech companies that are starting to move not completely away from microservices, but sort of like a hybrid between the two, where they're, they're realizing that. Maybe like us, they went a little bit too heavy into just making everything as granular as possible. Yeah, I think it was Amazon Prime that actually uh, they they made the shift from microservices and lambdas back to monoliths, and they found a significant boost to their performance for streaming and whatnot. Their and build costs and stuff yeah. were significantly reduced, and build times and stuff, right? Yeah, it because was obviously saving crazy amounts of money doing that. Mm. I do feel that we've kind of got a missing piece of the puzzle in terms of the context that kind of Lester was talking about where it feels like we have management roles at the moment that are able to take in that context of like, what do we need teams to do, right? What are the actual problems that we want teams to solve and um, what solutions are we building for those? And we need people who can kind of keep that in mind and push the people to actually fixing those and creating the solutions and stuff like that. But I feel like we don't have a technical role at the moment that is like you know I know that that is too many logs or that is too few you know and like I can look across all these data dog organizations um and be able to tell what's going on or like you know I can look across all these different systems and have like a broader view of like what works and what doesn't work for the setup that we have um and I can go and tell teams like hey I noticed this and I think you're doing it wrong um I think we're lacking a lot of that like and it's hard, right? It is really hard to be able to know how a bunch of different systems should run because then you have to know a bunch of different systems, right? But um, I do feel like we're kind of lacking that really high technical overview at the moment of like someone who just knows how things are supposed to work and what they're supposed to look like when they're running specifically. Because I think it's really easy to be like, we're all going to build and TypeScript, we're all going to do this, we're all going to do that and to build up the software, right? But it's it's hard to learn without working at scale. Like, how should the system run? Like, you know, you can go build an API. You can go build a front end in your own time. You can make all these little projects, but you can't suddenly have like, you know, millions upon millions of hits actually reaching those mini projects, right? Like scale is something that you can't kind of like replicate in your own time as a learning project. So it does feel like one of those things that is really hard to get experience in until you're like actually just there and things are breaking around you and you're trying to solve it. Especially when cost is not something that most engineers are thinking about. How would you though? 
like, because if it's not part of your remit, like if your mm-hmm. role is not like you're not judged based on the cost that your software incurs. That's like something that your lead has to be concerned about, right? Like that's something for them to deal with. Uh, but even then, like being in a, you know, organization at scale, there is only so much access and control that your lead has over those costs, right? There's things like um, different, our build systems are managed by the engineering platform team. Um, there's different things in AWS where they have, uh, you know, they're enforcing like this is the thing that we use at Seek. These are the settings that we're using. Blah blah blah. Um, th- like those costs go to a different team if they're in different accounts. Things like the VPNs that we use, VPCs, they all cost money. But different teams manage it. Stuff like Cloudflare. Like you're never going to be in charge of the entire flow for what you're doing. So you're never going to be fully in charge of that cost. And it's really hard to get an overview without just like spending your whole life doing different work in different teams to build that up, right? And then by the time you finally got it, you're like, well, I'm 90 now, so I think it's probably time <laughs> to finally retire. So here's, here's an interesting one. Um, so you've been around the block a couple of times, we could say, Lester. What what do you think of the the 10 times developer? Is that is that a thing? I would say so. Um, I've seen engineers that are very, very capable. Like They're, they're like, uh, how, how do you call them? Um, savants of code um, uh, and systems, right? Like, uh, and 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 that those people are very very proficient at doing what they need to do to to get the outcomes that they need. Um, and and generally, you see them as someone who's incredibly productive. Uh, they are a danger, though, for for managers. Uh, in that, uh, that is a very, um, it's a very good problem to have, but it's a double-edged sword. At Seek, we definitely take people first. And one of the ways in which usually good managers do that is by looking after people. And and a lot of times with these 10x developers, you they, they tend to grow out of their role pretty quickly, uh, which means that, you know, like if you took a people-first approach, you'd have to look at their careers and, and, and whether or not it's good for them to, to be in this, in, in this team or, or should they sort of go and tackle bigger problems. Um, and that's what you tend to see at Seek. You tend to see, and it, it looks weird from the outside. So you tend to see people that are very capable. They get, they they sort of um, be successful at, at in a team at doing something, and suddenly you yank them out and put them somewhere else, because you know, like like logic would prevail in, in that you probably want to keep them there for a little bit so that you know they can kind of um, so that the team continuously improves and performs. But now I've sort of turn 180 on that view in, in that I think um, making sure that they move around and they grow is, is the most important and paramount thing. The team, how the team survives without that person is basically your skill as a manager. Uh, that's, that's, that's what managers do. Like, like they, they produce pipelines of good engineers. And if they find particular savants, 10x engineers, uh, people just know, just, just know how to fix the problems. Um, I've seen a few of those at Seek. I won't name names, but yes, I've seen a few of those. What about the term barrel versus gun? Oh, you heard that one? Yes, that's a Keith Raboy concept. Yeah. Some I people often, are guns and some people are barrels. Uh, some people are some people Bullets are and am- barrels. Ammunition. That's right. It's ammunition, barrels. not guns. It's ammunition <laughs> and barrels. That's right. So one person can fire <laughs> lots of bullets. That's right. The, the saying goes that... <laughs> There are two types of quality people that you have in an organization, uh, ammunition and barrels. That's right. But if, if you have only one barrel, you can really only do one thing at a time. Mm. Um, and, and if you have two, you can do two things at a time. Um, I am a firm believer in barrels and ammunition. 
um, I often kind of talk to, uh, you know, the people that I talk to, my engineers, my my managers, in, in that sense, in that you're here to solve problems. The bigger the problem that you can solve, the higher up you go. It's, it's as easy as that. Like, it's simple, but not easy. That's actually really good advice. I have these conversations with people quite often because I'm just very passionate about career development, having come from working multiple jobs in construction and stuff and now working such a, what I would call, extremely cushy job in software engineering. I like I, I care very deeply about helping other people find their own pathway to something like this, like I have. And, uh, yeah, I am. Um, we do have it pretty good here, not going to lie. Yes. Like, especially at Seeks, like aces. We definitely do. I lost my train of thought. Uh, you're helping people get cushy jobs in the context of barrels and guns. You, the statement that you just said a second ago, which now is completely eluding me. Uh, which one? The one where the problem like, solving. If you can solve bigger problems, the bigger you go problem, further up. Yeah. Career development. That's you go. Yeah. that's. Thank you. Full circle. Here we go. That is a really great piece of advice. I haven't heard anyone put it like that before. I always talk about sphere of influence. Um, the greater your greater your sphere of influence, like the the further up you'll go usually. But I like that one; it was good. I'll take that. And and I'll and I'll sorry, I'll, I'll, that sphere of influence thing is a side effect of the fact that you solve big problems. Yeah. So if you solve big problems, your sphere of influence increases, and mm-hmm. and that's that's a side effect of that. Plus, like I think it's very possible to get a big sphere of influence just doing stuff like talking on Slack, right? Yeah. Um, and like, you know. I'm definitely a victim of that. All the time I spend talking on Slack isn't necessarily solving problems, but it's increasing my sphere of influence. But like, if that's also not coming with solving problems, then I'm just talking on Slack and I'm just kind of, you know, becoming more popular, but not necessarily <laughs> becoming a better developer. <laughs> I actually are helping other people with their problems. This, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's a thing too. But like, there is definitely just a time when it's just memes. I feel like these are actually two things, right? Like one is your sphere of influence, which you might not necessarily, you could grow your sphere of influence by solving big problems, but you could also grow your sphere of influence in other ways. So like being part of the grad program, helping bring good talent into the business and grow that talent and help them, encourage them and empower them to push good modern ideas into those teams. Yeah. One thing I'd add onto the uh, ammunition and barrel thing, um, I'd encourage everyone to um, start to exhibit Barrel-like behavior. Could you define barrel-like behavior? Uh, overcoming obstacles, uh, becoming friends with them, going above them, around them, um, underneath them, and you know, doing what you need to do to get things done. Um, that's a good start. Think about the things that you need to do to get that done. Um, a lot of it has to do with people. Like I said, again, it's it's we're, we're solving people problems even internally. You know, we're, we're, we're providing value to our customers by making it easier for, for them to find jobs and find find good employees. But internally, when we're trying to get <laughs> up, when we're trying to get stuff, oh, that probably needs to be scrubbed out. <laughs> no, no, no. That might be it. That might be our first bleeper. We'll have to find a little like <laughs> the, the secret on the secret ad where it's like, see, just when that happens. <laughs> the secret. Yep. Yes. So, um, you know, trying to get stuff done and and um, and, and you'll stumble. Um, but if you don't try and you don't start, um, you'll never be able to learn what those barrel-like behaviors are like. And it's contextual. But there are certain themes around that. So being really resourceful, um, being able to demonstrate that you are a type of person that can bring confidence, um, not get stuff done yet, but bring confidence. So, you know, like being able to uh, make sure that your manager has full confidence in you when you're given a, some, something to do, a task, um, and if, if you're not confident, your um, your manager sort of understands that you will tell them as soon as 
is possible and doesn't wait till the end of the line before it becomes an emergency, that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I always say be someone that others come to. And that I try to keep that as open-ended as possible because it can mean different things to different people depending on the domain that you're in, the career path that you want to have for yourself. Whatever that means to you, just be someone that other people come to, whether it's for advice, for getting problems solved or whatever it is. If you can situate yourself in a team where people are coming to you for whatever it is, um, I feel like that's a good way to propel yourself forward in your career as well. I think that's also one of those things though, where people aren't going to come for one without the other, right? Like people aren't going to come to you for, with technical questions unless you have made them feel comfortable with that um, and building up that like psychological safety. Um, I think like, yeah, to be really successful, you do have to have like both the technical know-how, but also the ability to make people comfortable with you as a person and, you know, it can be really intimidating to ask people for help. Um, so you've got to make sure that like you are someone safe. Also, I think we should rename barrel to just like gelatinous cube. You just like absorb problems. You know, whatever's in your <laughs> way is just now absorbed. So you're just Kirby. You're just like sucking yeah, up exactly. And all the people problems. don't really get a choice about coming to you. You go and <laughs> you suck them in. <laughs> there, there was a Bruce Lee uh, that 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 thing about you know making people come to you, be the person that people come to. That's a great. That's a great heuristic to kind of live by, and and a gr- great principle to kind of learn learn on. Uh, one of the things about that this blob jelly thing, I think um, Bruce Lee said it once: be water. Be water swept away in the river in that you conform to any shape yeah Yeah. that's the greatest quote i love hearing that quote yeah so good what's your favorite thing about seek favorite thing about seek i get to do what i like every day which is basically to build powerful people that's my goal um that's why i became become manager Uh, i want to build powerful people people that can be valuable everywhere they go no matter where whether it's seek inside seek outside seek that sort of thing so that's my passion, and I get to do that every day. That's pretty cool. You're in the right role then. Can you describe the most powerful person you've ever built? I don't want to name names, but you know, like like seeing seeing people sort of. Um, I I I can see, um, you know, one of my managers that are you know, thinking way above where I am. Um, so you know, they're ready for the next role. Um, where where I find success is um, if if I can if I can help. If I can have a hand in helping someone be better than I am, I've succeeded. I definitely agree with that one. I, I'm seeing that in my team now. I'm seeing how quickly people are growing in their individual pursuits, and it's actually become very satisfying. I was thinking back when I'd first joined the company, it was... Five years ago. Five years ago, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a competitive environment, but coming out of uni and, and going into a grad role, there is an element of like wanting to make sure that you're getting the most out of the program and you kind of measure yourself against your peers. Um, again, the thought, the thought eludes me. I think I've, I've, my brain's been spent for talking. No, I think, I think you, you hit on a point there. One last, one last, last thing that I'd like to say is, you know, like uh, it's a competition. Like, you, you know, you come in as an engineer, as a senior engineer, it is really a competition to see who is going to be tech lead for that team, right? Like, so, so that, that sort of behavior um, is embedded into the, whole, into the whole process of, you know, you growing up in your career. But what I've found is that at some point when you're senior enough, like let's say a senior engineer going into a tech lead role kind of thing, you, you're, you're actually judged and, and and people don't realize this you're actually you know, not benchmarked or judged based on how well you collaborate with other technical leaders because nothing happens in isolation when we're solving people problems 
So one something that that took me a long time to mature to to understand that my next role is actually how good I am at collaborating, whereas in, I'm previously very competitive. That's that's the point I was trying to make. Is that previously I felt competitive because I had to try and like get that get my leg up right to be able to get where I needed to be. And now that I'm sort of where I wanted to be, I'm that's completely drained away from me, and I'm becoming so much more satisfied in seeing other people succeed and go beyond wherever I had originally planned for myself to be. I think that's also, though, where this stuff you were saying about moving around comes in handy too, right? Because, you know, yeah, there's one tech lead role for a team, but sure, you could all compete for that one tech lead role. But if you're competing to be the best in a particular team, then, like, you're probably denying yourself opportunities to grow into, you know, a better person for the next role as well. So I think that's also where, you know, Sure, someone else might get this tech lead role, but you can also use that as an opportunity to potentially take a tech lead in a different team, move around, get that knowledge, get that skill. Next role, you've suddenly got the knowledge of two teams. They've only got the knowledge of one, right? Yeah. Absolutely. It is It is a bit of a struggle and a mental shift, though, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting when you have a lot of seniors in the one team and it's like every single one wants to take that next step and you're like, so at best, one of us can be lead or staff engineer. And then you're like, but then if we all go separate ways, then we lose what we had. And so it's like this this constant churn in teams is, is a really interesting one in trying to like maintain the culture and the performance and, and everything constantly growing. Yeah, I would think though that in a really senior heavy team like that, most people are probably already going to be like starting to not butt heads, right? But like, the room's too crowded. Even before we're talking about promotions and everything, like I think that people who are senior are wanting to take on more responsibilities, right? Like the bigger problem you can solve, the more satisfying it is. So I do think that having that many senior people, like you're probably already starting to struggle to like share the problems that you want to solve, um, at least in like a leadership capacity. So like someone's going to have to move eventually anyway. Nice. 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 Nice, nice, nice. Nice, 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 nice. <laughs> I um, like it. Thanks for having me. It was great. And I hope I added to the um, to the confusion. It was very interesting. Thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you uh, on the podcast and, and hope to have you back again, Lester. Cool. Happy to be back if you want me. Always. Definitely. Thank you, Lester. This has been Seekbytes Podcast, an engineer for engineers. Wait. This has been Seekbytes Podcast, an engineer by... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're yeah, engineers yeah, yeah. for engineers. I totally got it. You can tell I've only had one coffee today. This has been Seekbytes Podcast, a podcast by engineers for engineers. Uh, today on the show, we have had Bridget Barnes, Seamus Carney, Elliot Miller, and special guest, Lester Dong. <laughs> Huzzah. Thanks for listening. Nice. Thank you. Thank you.